Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights, in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with John Pierce, who's the Chief Investment Officer at Unisuper, a $100 billion fund for the university sector. John, welcome to the show. Pleasure. So you're pretty well known in Australia, but can you take us a little bit back to where it all started? How did you get interested uh, in investing? Well, I started uh, off uh, in the back office of Westpac Investment Management, uh, which and saying in the back office, I would recommend that to, to any investment professional. I think it's a, a really good grounding. You, you learn the nuts and bolts of, uh, of, of the business. And um, I think you also uh, start, um, you know, you learn a bit of humility uh, as, as well. Um, so, and look, I spent pretty much uh, the first two decades of my career um, then moving on into a, a dealing room environment. So, which was a pretty exciting place to be for a, a young guy. Yeah, I can imagine so. So already from that early days, you were involved in trades and and really getting a look into the nuts and bolts of of transactions? Yeah, and, um, you know, it was obviously a very different environment because we didn't have um, the the benefit of all the uh, electronics, etc. So a lot of stuff was done, you know, open outcry and yelling and screaming and, you know, in the middle of smoke hazes in in dealing rooms. But as I said, it it was really exciting. And, And the other thing, you also get a sense of um, of risk, and you get you get a sense of you know what drives market inefficiencies. You know because when you, you're seeing senior people around you that are that are being impacted by by markets um, where you know emotions are, are taking over decision making, you, you really get ingrained into you at, at that young age. Hey, there's no way in the world you can believe in market efficiency at, when, when we see this behaviour. <laughs> So you, you saw that, that what is commonly termed as the animal instincts uh, uh, pretty early on? Yeah, yeah. Animal spirits are always there. Right? And uh, we will always be, I, I guess, uh, suffer from the, the, the foibles uh, of, of human nature. Uh, we get fearful, we get greedy, um, we, and we suffer from all those um, you know, irrational afflictions. Yeah. So I think Unisuper is is characterized by by uh, doing a lot of things in house and being very active, and and also having acquired the ability to put trades in fairly quickly. But that wasn't always the case. Can you tell us a little bit about how the board got comfortable? with moving to that model where you're more hands-on? Well, when I, I joined what, 11 years ago now, and um, I, I joined uh, very much with a mandate to to bring um, our funds in-house. And you know, I'm quite often asked, um, you know, how, how do you get started? How do you uh, 
how did Unisuper manage to do these, um, to get their in-house strategies in place so quickly? And, and my answer is always, you, you've got to have strong sponsorship at the board level, because without that, you are, you're pretty much, you're fighting a battle that you're probably going to lose in the end. Because as soon as something goes wrong, you'll have, you'll have a problem um, progressing. I was very fortunate. I had um, a key sponsor in Chris Cuff. Uh, Chris and I have got a really long uh, association in, you know, both in a, in a business context and, and as friends. So there was a lot of uh, trust there. Um, and Chris was obviously a, a very influential person uh, on, on the board. So I, I was really fortunate to, to have that sponsor. And then, um, you know, I also very fortunate that we had uh, an investment committee that was very experienced. Um, you know, they investment backgrounds themselves. Um, so we, uh, we're clear in terms of what was uh, the board's responsibilities, the investment committee's responsibilities, and then management, uh, once we stayed within uh, boundaries stipulated by, by the board and investment committee, we were pretty much allowed to get on with it. Yeah. Was there sort of an example, um, a model that you followed, um, maybe from overseas? I don't call it, not really a model. You know, people ask me what was the vision, and uh, I'm quick to say we didn't actually have one. <laughs> Visions, you know, are sometimes good, sometimes work against you because visions can be pretty scary things when when you're embarking on a path that um, some would consider really risky, you know, you're changing business models. Unisuper was a successful fund, right? So it wasn't um, a turnaround story. So why go down this path? Um, so a vision was potentially going to be uh, dangerous. So we, we employed what uh, a phrase that I, I actually stole from someone else, um, uh, Michael Cheney, who was the ex-boss of West Farms. And and he used to use this term called logical incrementalism. Right. I actually mentioned to Michael one day, you know, I've stolen this from you. He said, don't worry, mate, I stole it from someone else. Um, but anyway, uh, so what's logical incrementalism? That is really, we, we're just doing things in a logical way, right, step by step. And so if we do fail at any given point, you know, we're not going to fall too far. And that way you bring the board along with you. You bring the investment committee along with you. So we, we started off literally by, it wasn't a bing bang theory. And we started off literally uh, by uh, implementing a listed property securities portfolio. Was it about what, 20 odd, 25 stocks? Bloomberg, um, end to end. And we basically said, look, um, this is going to be the first portfolio. Not much downside here. We'll run it pretty much on a passive basis. If things don't blow up, we might try something <laughs> a little bit more ambitious. And, and that's pretty much how how we uh, got onto the journey. And now if you think about if from day one, I said to the board, look, within three years time or five years time, we're going to do billions of dollars of zero cost collars on currencies, probably you'd have a few people on the board really worried. Yeah. So, but that's ended up where we got to, right? In, in a reasonably short order, but there was never really a leap to that. When it was time to do something like that, the investor committee said, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So it, it seems that uh, a lot of funds, they start with Australian equities, probably because they're most comfortable in, in that space. But you started with listed property. Why was that? It's really to just to make sure that the processes, the systems, et cetera, worked. Um, in pretty short order, it was probably within three months, we had an Aussie equity portfolio up and running too. Right, right. So what are some of the learnings from those early days? Are there, are there, were there any surprises when you set it up? No surprises. I think with the, the learnings, um, the logical incrementalism to me is, you know, the, the best way uh, to approach the, these types of 
you know, th these are business transitions. It's not just a project, right? You know, with, with a project, you can get all things, everything has to be done on one day. I think, uh, you know, being pretty clear what you don't want it to achieve in six months or, or 12 months, but don't put a, you know, a, a sort of a line in the sand saying, this is where we have to be in three years' time, right? Because, because things change. And if uh, it thinks if you know the facts change, your opinion has to change. Um, so, so we we embarked on that path. The um, we had some very clear parameters um, in terms of what we were going to manage in house and what we were not. You know, and we were not going to manage start taking on things where we were clearly not going to have any competitive edge. Right? So we were very disciplined in terms of you know, the the types of strategies. You know, we we looked at technology you know technology mandates, high yield mandates. Asian mandates, you know, Japanese mandates, Indian mandates. Um, we were never going to be able to get the team to manage those sort of strategies. Um, so it was always going to be a hybrid model. Systems, if you ask every asset management team, they all want their own system. You know, a, a fixed interest guys will want, you know, let's say a, a Charles River and equities guys want, you know, IRS or whatever. And we said, look, we don't want to be a tech shop. We, we're an investment manager. Um, so we're going to get Bloomberg and uh, it's going to be end-to-end -end Bloomberg. And, uh, and that was a, a terrific decision because, you know, we've got uh, pretty much um, almost zero um, operational errors, right? Yep. It's, a, it's, a, it's an integrated system. So these are sort of the, uh, the key learnings. Yeah. Can you give us a sense of how big the in-house program is at the moment? Yeah, it's about 70%. So what, we're over 100 billion. So around 70% of that is, uh, is in-house. And, and so pretty much every asset class? Uh, yeah, but once again, it's not those, we're still not involved in you know, particularly the offshore stuff that uh, requires you know, large teams of uh, fundamental analysts, et cetera. We're, we're not going to get in that. But, you know, all the generic asset classes, uh, yes, we're across all of them. So we always like to ask people, what is your best and what is your worst trade and what do you learn <laughs> from it? <laughs> Can you give us a sense of that? Yeah, look, we, we've, uh, but the, um, the ones, uh, the, I guess if from a, a thematic uh, perspective, we were very on early on to the, the tech thing. Right? So, so post-GFC, when, you know, I think the, the bulk of institutions were still a, a little bit gun-shy uh, when it came to taking on risk, we got on really early to the tech theme to the point where we were, we were going to the US and we were looking at pure tech managers and, and they were you know, dusting off their, their flip charts because nobody really wanted to, to to talk to them and um so that was uh, and that's and, and since then we've only added to that exposure we've taken some you know minor profits here and there but then look to get, get back in at, uh, at any correction so we've um uh, we've added that and it's paid off really handsomely in terms of if i had to single out the ones that's a thematic sort of trade one specific or idiosyncratic trade um the one that probably the cleverest one we've done was a a, a really big a portfolio insurance position that we established in 2019. Now, this is applied to our defined benefit fund. It was the face value of it was uh, $9.6 billion, right? Uh, which is by far the largest, you know, single trade, uh, well, single position that, that I've been associated with in, in derivatives. Um, and you can imagine um, now, you know, they were way out of the money options that we bought um, at around 1%. In the depths of COVID, you can imagine the mark to market on that position. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the billions. Now, as it turns out, we're really proud of that, but we didn't make any money. <laughs> we didn't cash it in, all right? Um, and you say, well, you know, 
why didn't you cash that in? Well, it's easy in hindsight, right? But it's, it, it'd be akin to cashing in your insurance policy when, uh, when the fire's across the road from your house, right? You, you wouldn't do it. And what it did give us, the, it gave us the, the confidence to tell members they can rest easy, right? Um, the, the defined benefit fund um, was in surplus, right? And it was protected with this options position. And it actually gave us the confidence to, to buy, to buy more uh, risk assets at, at the bottom of the market, right? So, so that was, um, you know, probably the, the cleverest trade we've done uh, since my time at Unisuper. Now, there's been a couple of uh, poor ones as well, right? Um, you know, if we uh, look at um, our Chinese exposure at the moment, that's just not working out well at all, right? Um, we, uh, we've had a little flutter in, um, in UK banks. You know, we, we got in. Uh, we got in high and we sold low and I, I don't even want to look at it now because I, you know, I, they've probably rallied and, and um, they've made, made a, a fool of me. Um, so, so we, we've got regrets over that, but I must say we've, we haven't done anything enough um, that's big enough to actually hurt us, um, which, which is not bad, but yeah, we've, we've made mistakes along the way. Um, they just haven't been overly painful. The other, I guess, is the opportunities that you haven't taken advantage of, right? That's, it's always something that you've got regrets, you know, uh, about. And I think the biggest one is probably, you know, we as a team, you know, two years ago or you know, two and a half years ago said decarbonisation is going to be, you know, one of the most pervasive thing for the next decade. So we all agreed to that. And we did things around the edges um, uh, portfolio. We've got a global environmental opportunities portfolio that is absolutely shooting the lights out, but I still think we could have done more. You know, we could have, um, we could have uh, really loaded up um, on not just tech, but, it, but green tech. You know, when, you know, valuations looked expensive, but it turns out they were really cheap. Um, so I think that's probably the, the biggest opportunity foregone, which, which gives you, uh, there's a regret factor there. What do you define as your investment style? Do you tend towards more growth, more value, or is it something completely different? I don't like um, the, the term, the style, right? I, I, I struggle with, uh, with labels, right? But if you had to uh, apply a label uh, to, to Unisuper, it would be quality at a reasonable price, right? If you had to apply a, a label. And, and where does that derive from? It, it derived from a, a really basic first principle that, that we ascribe to, and that is superannuation, equals life savings, right? So we've got some governing principles that we all live, live by in the investment team. And the first one is superannuation equals life savings. So from that, we wanna have a, a quality bias throughout the portfolio. So if, if you're gonna um, stick a label on us, that, that's the one that uh, I'd, I'd be you know, most comfortable with. Yeah. Now, in the years that you've built up uh, a portfolio of, of uh, in-house trades and, and, and deals, how has that sort of influenced your thinking about structuring mandates for external managers? Does has that changed? I, I think it has changed. Um, it's a, it's um, I've got to cast my, my memory back a, a long time now. But you know when when I uh, initially joined Unisuper and we were pretty much outsourcing everything. You know I was sitting in on the meetings with external managers, and what was it was very clear that the um, the conversation was all one way. You know the, the typical meeting would be. Um, the manager would pick their two or three favourite stocks and pretty much talk about them for an hour. 
<laughs> and there'll be five minutes for questions, right? And um, on those stocks, which of course the manager would be all over, all right? So he or she would sound like a like a real genius. Um, and um, you'd come away not really fully appreciating whether the manager's on, on, on top of everything. These days, the, the conversations are two-way. It, it, it really is. There's a, there's, a, there's a huge level of mutual respect uh, amongst the managers. You know, they realise that, that we manage money, that we've got ideas and opinions, etc. The questions are, are much better. They're far more incisive. Um, you know, there's, um, there's bluff calling or there's, you know, we, we, we just know when, when someone's not on top of uh, things because we're managing money ourselves. And, and by the way, it's a, there's a structural uh, point to be made too. We don't separate the external manager process from our in-house, okay? They, they all s- sit in one team, right? So, so you've got people managing portfolios that are also questioning the external managers. Yeah. yeah. It's a really good exchange of information. And we're very honest about that with the external managers as well. As a matter of fact, there are a couple of mandates that we, we haven't given or we <laughs> they, they weren't actually up for it because they weren't comfortable sharing information with us. Uh, and we understand that as well. Yeah. So you, you want a higher level of information and, and you probably also know better where to look for. But does it also um, change sort of, do you put additional clauses or protection within mandate contracts that you may have not thought about before? As of today, clearly what we have got is um, a fair bit of leverage over pricing. If you're negotiating with us, knowing that we do have in-house capability, um, the pencil's got to be pretty sharp, right? But that's also a function of size too, I guess. I imagine that most of the big institutional managers would, would uh, negotiate pretty sharp price. So I just think it, we, we do get a bit of an edge with our, with our own in-house management. But in terms of um, the nature of, um, you know, we've, got, we've had tailored portfolios. There, is, there are some uh, portfolios where we'll say, look, that here's a high yield mandate, for example, but we don't want you going anywhere near the energy sector. Yeah. Right? Um, rather than maybe a, a manager that's not as confident um, about, you know, making those sort of decisions and, and those sort of exclusions, we'll, we'll exclude that. Um, if you look at our, our Chinese, um, we've got an Asian bond portfolio. And um, fortunately, we said no property developers. And this is before <laughs> Evergrande, right? So That was a good call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so... So they're the sort of things that, yeah, that, that we have been able to tailor because of our, I guess, you know, we're closer to the market than, than some of the other institutions. Yeah. So over the years, sometimes um, fund managers try to be a bit more innovative, come up with new strategies. And I've seen a couple of cases where they, they sort of bring something out that, that potentially goes across multiple asset classes. And then usually quite quickly after that, you hear that uh, there's actually only uh, potentially two funds that might be willing to look at these strategies. That is uh, you at uh, Unisuper and, and probably Sam Cecilia at House Plus. Because I think you, you've made an, uh, a choice to not be too rigid with asset class buckets. Can you tell me a little bit about that decision? Yeah, I don't know if um, it's particularly innovative. I think it... <laughs> I think it's more common sense um, than, than, than innovative. It's probably more, you know, um, counter uh, innovative in the sense that once again, the, it starts with the structure of, of the team. Uh, we've got, you know, and this sounds motherhood, and you, you know, you've got to sort of be in it to believe it. But um, you know, it's genuinely one team, right? So on any on any large deal, um, it's very common for you to see 
multiple asset classes being involved. You know, when we, um, you know, there'll be someone from the global equity team, the Aussie equity team, the fixed entrance team or the property team, et cetera, you know, all, all in the room together uh, thrashing things out. So, so the, the starting point is that if there's a good investment to be had, we're going to find a home for it. Yep. That, that, that's the starting point. And obviously it has to align with our principles, et cetera. Uh, the best example I think I would give you is hybrids. If you look at, um, you know, I doubt there'd be any other institutions that own more hybrids than, than we do. You know, we, three of the four major banks, um, when we had the, it wasn't the GFC, it was the um, the European debt crisis when we had a huge blowout in credit markets, et cetera. You had the major banks issuing a lot of uh, hybrids. Three out of the four, we cornerstone, allocating over a billion dollars uh, to hybrids. Now, what you'll find with um, a lot of other institutions, where do hybrids fit? Yep. They're not really equity, they're not really debt, there's something in between. It didn't matter to us. You know, to us, they were a, a fantastic deal, fantastic value, and we were going to find a home for them regardless. So that, to, to me, is the, the real benefit of not being constrained with the so-called buckets. Yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier Chinese equities, Asian bonds. Now, you were before the, the head of global asset management for Ping An. It's, of course, one of the, the largest Chinese insurance companies, which I think you know gives you probably more of an insight on, on the Chinese market and the thinking of investors there than anyone else in uh, Australia. And at the moment, we see that especially Chinese bonds uh, are being included in major indices. Chinese equities has been included in, in emerging market indexes. So we see people thinking more about a dedicated China exposure, whether it's bonds or equities. With sort of your background at Ping An, what is your thinking around including more direct exposure to China? Well, you know, I would have answered this question differently maybe a year ago than that I'm answering it today. But firstly, in terms of, of my background, I, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't attach too much importance to that because um, all, all it means is that uh, I'm more qualified than the average person to say, uh, you know, I know what I don't know, um, which is a hell of a lot, right? So, so, so that's the most important thing. But look, we do still have a, a dedicated Chinese exposure. It's not enough to to hurt us uh, either way. The last three months, the events in China have really, really testing our conviction. Yep. And it's not Evergrande. And as a matter of fact, Evergrande, um, I think there's a, a real positive to be taken out of Evergrande. Um, you know, Evergrande is a sign that the uh, the Chinese uh, are more inclined to to let excesses work themselves out, let the system clear. Right. It's it's um, you know failure is important. Yep. Uh, for a, a properly functioning economy, right? It's, it's important that we see over-leveraged, um, you know, uh, players uh, fail now and again, um, as long as that, you know, you don't, uh, it doesn't develop into a Lehman's type of uh, situation, which, which you know, I, I don't believe it will, um, uh, China. So so it's not Evergrande at all. I, it, as I said, I think there's a, there's a positive to be taken out of Evergrande. Um, what's much more concerning is, you know, what's happening with the education sector, the tech sector, et cetera. So, I think the the positive perspective on that is look, this is just the Chinese saying, look, where if you're if you are owning assets and those assets are, are deemed to be social infrastructure, right? We're not going to let you just make you know just be the the profit motive is going to rule everything. It's social infrastructure, so we are really going to put you know on on a tight leash. And if uh, you know in the education sector, I mean that. You know, I've sort of inferred that to me, you're not going to make any money, right? Right. Now, if a, if a sector can't make any money, while it might have public utility, to an extent, an offshore investor is worth zero. Yep. 
So, so the question is, is this reset that we're seeing in China going to be restricted to tech and education and, you know, maybe some healthcare, et cetera, where we've got social infrastructure, or was this signaling, you know, a much, much broader reset um, where, you know, this whole China as a, you know, state-based market economy um, is, is actually now being threatened. If that's the case, right, well, you know, China as an investable proposition becomes a much, much bigger gamble, right? Yeah. So uh, it's, it's fair to say that our conviction has diminished quite a lot. So, so you think there is a real chance that uh, they might move away from a more capitalist system? That's the signals that are, that are being sent at the moment, right? Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, so, so it's, it's tread warily. And look, you know, look, hopefully in three years' time, we're looking back and saying, hey, what a great buying opportunity that was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it, just, it was just the China's resetting in, in, a, in a couple of sectors, but Xi Jinping hasn't come out and, 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 and made any effort to really calm market fears the way I've seen it. No, no. Do you also worry about sort of the geopolitical picture where the trade tensions and then now more tensions around Taiwan are, are flaring up? Look, if China, China invades Taiwan, all bets are off, okay? Um, that, uh, yeah, you, there'll be nowhere to hide. Uh, so, so, but let's, let's say that is, um, you know, I'd like to think that's a highly improbable event. You can't, you can't structure a portfolio based on that you know, on that being a base case or even, you know, attaching any sort of decent probability to it because um, you'll have your cash under your mattress or, you know, um, so. Uh, but geopolitical tension, there's always geopolitical tensions. And, and, and I think the impact on investments uh, and on portfolios has generally been exaggerated. Right? If you look at, you, you track back um, geopolitical shocks, and if you exclude the Arab-Israeli war, you know, and, and and the impact on oil price, you know, the oil price shocks, etc. Now that had a, a, a fairly long and, and severe impact. Most other geopolitical crises, if you actually track them back and and you look at markets, you know, 12 months on from when uh, the point they started, you've, you've pretty much made money most of the time. Yeah. All right. So I think they're they're exaggerated as a as a major source of risk. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. If we talk a little bit about asset allocation, uh, I think one of the the key problems that investors are trying to solve today is the low bond yields and the fact that bonds probably have lost some of their defensive qualities at at the current uh, interest rates. Now, we've seen several ways of dealing with that. I think a lot of funds are looking at sort of bond proxies in real asset properties. What is your solution to this problem? Yeah, well, the, the the first solution is that people, people, you know, investors do have to recalibrate what their expected returns are, right? So, so that's the first thing everyone has to do. Um, you know, so and, and we've seen that if you look at the target returns of, of most funds around the country, the growth options, etc., they've gradually reduced target returns across the board. You know, in, in not totally commensurate with the reduction in bond yields, but they've they've all been on, on a, a downward trajectory. And largely driven by falls in the in the risk-free rate. But if we talk about uh, bonds as a defensive asset and replacing them, we've got to firstly, you know, what you know, what are those defensive qualities that we're looking for there? Well, the first thing is you need liquidity in a crisis. All right, so you know, uh, unlisted assets don't help you there. Yeah. Uh, you know, so so to me, 
what we're doing is keeping duration pretty short and you know we, we're holding a lot higher cash levels than we would have otherwise had because you know you're right um, with, with rates so low um, your, the volatility of, of your bond prices are going to be high right um, just the mathematics of it all so we're tending to hold a lot more cash uh, than we did in the past um, yes um, if you want to reduce volatility, unlisted assets are away. And we are looking at, at gradually uh, in, increasing unlisted assets. But even in the listed space, if you're not overly concerned about short-term volatility, you, you can still buy defensive assets in, in the listed space, right? So if, if your focus is more about um, guarding against a permanent loss of capital, well, you know, there are listed companies um, that, that you know, are going to experience volatility, um, but you can guard against a permanent loss of capital. So Unisuper still has a large uh, defined benefit division as well. I think it's about a third of the overall fund. Do you deal differently in that section with these type of questions? Yeah, look, defined benefit, it's, it's very much an absolute return uh, focus. Um, you know, it's it's all about um, meeting the promises. Um, so you, you, you are more in that um, liability-driven uh, you know, um, uh, framework. Having said that, our bias towards quality assets is still is still the same. Uh, we don't have the same need for liquidity, right? Because if you'd find benefit, you're, you're in. Um, so, yeah. so we, we we can take a longer term view with our our defined benefit portfolio. Yeah, we've seen a lot of changes. Well, it seems that the super industry is always changing here in Australia, but. Um, more recently, there's been a bit more scrutiny on, on performance versus the asset allocation with the Your Future, Your Super reforms and, and now the performance tests at, at EPRA. Now, I looked up the the, the the most recent heat map and Unisuper is looking pretty good on that one. I think on the over the five-year relative performance versus the simple reference portfolio I think you guys are number one, so <laughs> you don't have to worry. You just leave it at that then, right? <laughs> okay, we'll leave it at <laughs> Yes. Yeah. But how do you uh, think about these sort of metrics? Because there has been a lot of criticism around the fact that, well, this basically doesn't take into account the risk and return trade-off. It's purely looking at an asset allocation and how close you are to that. Um, what is your view? Does this... Is, is, is this a good test? Is this a bad test? Is it reasonable? Look, firstly, everyone agrees that high cost, you know, perennially underperforming funds should be closed down. All right. So that that's that's the starting point. And we, we all agree with that. You know, the question is whether you know, this is the right way to go about it with these sort of tests. And look, just because we happen to be looking pretty good at the moment doesn't mean that they're the right tests, right? Um, we, we should, we, we've got to come back to the principles. There's, um, there was a good, um, you know, a really um, concise paper, I think it was written by Frontier, showing how you know, there are some funds there that uh, have, you know, consistently outperformed their peers that are failing the tests and vice versa. Yes. You know, underperforming funds that, that pass the test. When you are getting results like that, you know there's something fundamentally wrong with the tests. Yeah. Without even having to go into um, the, the details of, of the benchmarks, etc. When it's spitting out results like that, you've got to go back and say, why is it spitting out the results? There's, there's something wrong with the tests. Now, personally, I felt that APRA was well and truly on the right track with the heat map anyway, right? And 
you know, just a simple sort of uh, look at that heat map and, and you know, you could have come up with some sort of simple rule whereby, you know, over a, a seven, eight-year period, if you never found yourself in the second quartile over any given year, well, you got a case to answer, you know. Why should you still be allowed <laughs> to run this fund? Um, I think something as simple as that would have, would have sufficed, quite, quite frankly. Uh, and, you know, Apple will argue, well, the heat map's still there, you go to the ATO, but... Before you go to that, you have to write a letter to your members, a self-incriminating letter to your members, saying you're in a dud fund. Yeah. So by the time you get into the ATL website, um, the horse is bolted. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised to see, um, you know, let's just say, a, a review of, of these tests in, in a couple of years. Um, is you can imagine um, next year when we've got you know another what 700 different products uh, being uh, benchmarked, etc. It's probably going to be, you know, you know, there's going to be a lot of letters being sent out, I'd imagine. Right? Yeah, and there's also a little thing about past performance not being an indicator of uh, future performance. Well, that's right, yeah. Which I think uh, was pointed out by Frontier indeed as well, that, you know, you look at Maritime Super, um, they didn't do so well in the test, but they've made changes and they've now basically a completely different product, yet they more still likely to need to write a letter to the members yeah. based on the last seven years. They're really um, flawed. If you, if you look at the span of, um, of uh, investment products and, and if you look at, say, a high growth option with 100% vested in, in growth assets, I actually see the test as being valid, right? Um, you know, it's, it's all growth, right? And, and you know, if, if a member is elected, you know, 100% growth, I think a member's got a right to feel that you're doing better than an index portfolio. I think that's a fairly reasonable uh, thing to expect, right? But you look at the other end of the spectrum, right? Look at a conservative option, right? Where you've got, um, you know, 70% in defensive assets, 30% in growth, right? There a member has actually said, look, I want you to, rather than it's all about growing my capital, I actually want you to think about capital preservation here. You know, I've got a nice pot of money here, right? And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty concerned about preserving that. Now, the way we look at that type of strategy, it's benchmark unaware, right? We, we, you know, you're putting assets there which are not going to sustain a permanent loss of capital, maybe a lot of volatility, et cetera. You don't care what the benchmark's doing. Yeah. Right? And I think that's where the tests are really struggling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think part of the philosophy behind the test as well is that there is this push for consolidation in the in the industry. And there's been sort of a number thrown around that funds should be at least $30 billion in, in, in size to, you know, have the right scale and the right sort of ability to to drive cost efficiencies. Now, at $100 billion, you don't really have to worry about that. But what is your view on mergers? Is Unisuper in the market? Yeah, look, just in terms of, I don't know where the $30 billion came from, right? I don't know if there's anything magical about that number or any science behind that number. And I'd imagine that there, you know, there are, there are $20 billion funds that you can run more efficiently than some $100 billion funds are run. But let's just accept the premise that, you know, if you've got the right technology in place, scale should lead to cost, um, you know, to economies. Uh, and let's just take that as, uh, as a given. Is Unisuper interested in uh, in growing? Uh, absolutely. So recently, we announced that we've uh, we're now pub- open to the public. Yeah. So so we basically, you know, now formally said that we are looking to um, source um, 
uh, growth in AUM outside the tertiary education sector. Um, as an aside, um, in, a, in a couple of months, we've uh, raised over $600 million, which um, given that, you know, if you, you wouldn't have seen a university ad, uh, sorry, a uni super ad, because we haven't had any, right? So that's pretty much word of mouth. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's really, as I said, it's a great story that's never really been told. And just from word of mouth, we've been able to uh, attract that, that level of inflow. It's been, it's been fantastic. So, yes, um, we are um, looking to, to grow the fund outside the tertiary education sector. Um, yes, if a, if a merger makes sense, we'd be absolutely open to it. But the first, second and third test that it has to pass, it has to make sense um, for our members. And it's not, and you know, yeah, sure for the members of the the fund that we're merging with, of course, and they've they've got their own trustee board to think about that. But it has to make sense for our members. Yeah, we've got this concept of of the sweet spot. You know, what what's the sort of sweet spot um, that we want to strive to get fund flows and scale so that we optimize our investment outcomes and our cost outcomes, and and that's a, a test that that we will will look to pass. So that we can justify any merger with our members. Yeah. So I think it was in July that Unisuper announced um, that it was open to to all members. But I, I think that structure was in place for for some time before that. What was sort of the decision process behind becoming a public offer? You know, we there's there's a few headwinds, right? Um, uh, firstly, the the education sector itself is under a lot of pressure, right, because of COVID. You've seen borders shut so when you've got um 40 of your foreign students are, are chinese um and foreign students constitute a fair bit um you've got um you know you've got to think about you know what where the growth of that sector the growth the outlook for the growth of that sector that's that's the first thing but then um clearly the the new choice and stapling were game changers yeah right that, they were absolute game changers and um so it was a pretty easy decision in the end Think that's coming into effect on the first of November. The stapling rules. So, so how how is that going to change the sector? You think, and, and what's sort of the impact on Unisuper? Look, well, if we, you know, if we get the story out there, we should do pretty well, right? You know, we've got a pretty compelling story to tell. High performing, we're one of the, the the lowest cost, highest performers in the market. We've got a great story to tell. We've got some. Some unique products, you know, and, and um, yeah, global environmental opportunities, for example, in-house managed, etc. So we got we got a really good story to tell. So um, we should um, we've got every right to to look forward to the challenge. Fair enough. Um, if we look a little bit towards the future, what, what is sort of on your agenda uh, in the coming months? First thing is getting everyone back to the office. <laughs> That's what I'm really looking forward to, first and foremost. And and and, and it's a serious thing, you know. We um, you know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that um, there's no such thing as a, you know, as a as a Zoom or a Teams culture. You know, you don't build um, real culture, collaborative culture, uh, over over websites um, and, and and virtual meetings. We what does the new normal look like for us? Um, we um, agreed as a team that we're going to be everyone's going to be in the office Tuesday, Wednesdays, Thursdays. When we were doing that, just before the latest lockdown, uh, the the energy in the office was. You know, palpable. Yeah, you could just feel the energy. You know, we're all you know pretty tight knit group. There's only sort of you know there's less than sixty of us all sitting on the same floor um, in Burke Street in Melbourne. And and you know we we've got to, we want to rebuild the, the social capital that's been eroded. 
you know, over the last, the last few months. Um, we've hired a few people, senior people. Um, we have to integrate them culturally uh, in, into, the, into the team. So that's a really big, big priority uh, for us. Um, the second thing, of course, is public offer. And, and you know, that puts, you know, there's, there's different demands on the investment team. Um, you know, you, when you've gone through uh, your lives not really having to, to promote yourselves, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a different, you know, it, it, it creates its own challenges. Um, so, uh, you know, my, my team is, is aware that, um, you know, they've got to get out more and, tell, and help tell the, tell the story. So that's, that's going to be another challenge. And then, look, the other one is just it's really business as usual. It's um, not, you know, I, I think it's very dangerous trying to predict things, um, you know, but, it's, but it's, it's really important to sense and respond really quickly. Yeah. So, so, so do you think that you, you switch to a model where you do maybe three days in the office and two days from yeah, home and yeah. get a little bit more flexibility, but still have that yeah. ability build, to build culture? But the important thing is that it's not a case of is three days, any three days. I mean, it's important that we're all in the same three days. Otherwise, you, you know, you've got the worst of both worlds. Yeah. So we, we've got to try and get, look, and there's been some fantastic, there's some more openness for me over, over um, the virtual meetings. You know, we've, um, yeah, the information sharing, the whole team gets to, you know, sit in our investment committee meetings. Yeah. And do that physically. Little things like that that have um, that that has changed, and we're going to hold on to the best parts of that. But there's no substitute for everyone being in the office at the same time as well. No, for sure. Does it change your view on on how you do transactions as well? And and I did a interview recently with one of the guys from BlackRock, and he said, when I asked him about the changes in the pandemic, he said, "Well, if you told me 18 months ago that I would buy a company without having visited and without having had a face to face." Uh, a meeting, I would tell you you were crazy, but we've just done one. And it doesn't mean that he's going to do a lot of them, but he said, yeah, there are changes and we, we can make things slightly different and probably end up with a hybrid uh, model as well. But, yeah. but from sort of that transactional point of view, has it changed things? Well, what has changed is that we know that we can do it. Yeah. The question is, do we want to do it? You know, is that the preferred way of doing it? I would still argue it's not the preferred way of doing it. But we know that we can resort to that in a crisis. We can do it. Having said that, what if the next crisis is um, a, a cyber crisis? Yeah. Guess what? How are we going to deal with that? Everyone's going to have to get into the office. And we have to camp out in the office. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, John, thank you very much for your time. Uh, you've been very generous with your time. It was a great conversation. So thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.